going to talk about um, an episode called The Court of the Kentish King um, from series 13, episode 6. Um, and I am joined today by Dr. Andrew Richardson from Canterbury Archaeological Trust. Hi, Andrew. Hello. We were just chatting um, about a really interesting project um, that you were working on last year, an amazing discovery. And it does actually link in to um, some of the stories at Eastry um, about uh, King Egbert uh, and his cousins. I wonder if you can just tell me a bit more about this discovery, because it's a really exciting story. Yeah. Well, this relates to St. Ianswith, who's actually the aunt of the two princes killed at Eastry. Oh, wow. OK. And so can you tell us a bit more about who she is then? So if we think back to King Ethelbert, who welcomes um, St. Augustine in 597, he married Bertha, who was the daughter of uh, King Charibert of Paris. So she's Merovingian, Frankish. Um, and they had a son called Edbald. And Edbald becomes King of Kent when Ethelbert dies, uh, which is either 616 or 618. We're not sure which year, but it's one of those two. Edbald is a controversial figure because he, when his father dies, he marries his stepmother. So his mother, Bertha's dead by then. King Ethelbert has remarried. We don't know the name of the woman he remarries because she's not recorded. Um, he remarries and then he dies and Edbald becomes king and then insists on marrying his stepmother, which even in the 7th century was a controversial thing mm. to do. And the church basically said to him, you, you can't, it's against church law, you know. It's against, you know, it's not, the Bible says you can't do that. And so Ed, Edbald said, I'm the king, I can do what I like. And so the church was thrown into crisis. He reverted to paganism. Oh, really? And there was, I mean, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury got to the point of packing his bags to leave. And then there was a change of heart. Um, and Edbald set aside his stepmother. Again, we don't know her name. We don't know what happened to her. I should think he gave her some money and told her to go away. Um and he got married to a good Christian Frankish noblewoman called Emma in about the year 624. And they had three recorded children, um, Ermenred, um, Erkenbert, who becomes king after Edbald, and Ianswith. Okay. She's probably the younger one. Um, and she founds later on she founds a monastery at Folkestone and is and then there's all sorts of myths and legends build up about her and the early records about her say she she rests at Folkestone or she's buried at Folkestone in, in the monastery that she herself founded and things like that and there's medieval references to her being buried there and and in 1095 her, the old monastery there was taken over by Benedictine monks from Normandy. But then about 40 years later, they wanted a new church and priory, and they built a new church, which is, is now the parish church of today, with a priory attached to it. And in 1138, they translated the relics of St. Ian'swith from the old church into the new church. 
And then through the Middle Ages, there was a cult of, of St. Ianswith, um, and we get rec late medieval records of people um, leaving bequests in their will to the shrine of St. Ianswith, um, you know, naming their children Ianswith, things like that. So, you know, proper local saints cult there. And in the 1500s, John Leyland visits there on his perambulation around Kent and says, talks about the church and says, there is St. Ianswith buried. But then you get the dissolution of the monasteries. And as a priory, it's handed over to the king. Um, there was some, we, we think there's a record of a head reliquary. So oh. probably some reliquary with parts of a skull in it or something, mm -hmm. which is handed over to the king's men. And all mention of it disappears. And so you'd assume that along with all many other saints and, 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 and relics and so on, it was all destroyed by the Reformation. Mm -hmm. But then in 1885, they were renovating the church and they were going to put up an alabaster panels all around the altar and they were fiddling around in the wall by the altar and they found a hidden alcove by the altar with a lead, very deformed lead container in it. And in the container were human bones and they looked at them and, and the Kent Archaeological Society said they appeared to be the bones of a young woman and the vicar at the time um, Matthew Woodward, who was a great sort of Anglo-Catholic, said these are the lost relics of St. Ianswith. And they've been, and they built a little alcove for them in the place where they were found. And ever since, they've been sort of venerated in the church, or, or you know, the church's position is these are the relic, relics of St. Ianswith, this lost Anglo-Saxon royal saint. Um, so we we're involved in this project called Finding Ianswith in conjunction with Christchurch University in Canterbury. Um, and we were looking at her whole legacy within the town of Folkestone, how her memory has been continued down the centuries, the water course associated with the name, all sorts of things. But of course, one of the things we were very interested in is, are these bones actually hers? And so we went to the church and we had a meeting in the church with the congregation who said, what we'd like to do is get the bones out and radiocarbon date them. And that took quite a bit of persuading. Yeah, I can imagine. Quite a bit of persuading. There was some controversy. There was some opposition, but we, we worked on it. And actually we said, after, we said, look, this lead container really needs some conservation. They had been looked at in 1980, the bones, and it had been determined by an osteologist they did appear to be the bones of a single individual probably female aged 18 to 25 so yeah, it's possible but we eventually secured permission and we went into the church first week of january 2020 the church was closed for a week and we set up a lab in the church because we said we don't want to remove if, if it is a saint if and this the church is dedicated to st mary and st Ianswith. so we said if this is St. Ianswith. We don't want to take her out of the church. So we bring the laboratory to the church. So we set up a lab in the church. Wow. Dana Goodburn Brown, who's worked on many time teams, was, was the lead conservator there. Um, and we and because we're worried about security overnight, we camped in the church as well, <laughs> slept overnight in the church. And medieval church in January is cold. I bet. Yeah. But it was good fun. And we got the box out the container we got the bones out and we laid the bones out in the table in the vestry 
and the osteologists worked on those and Dana Goodburn Brown worked on the cleaning up the container. Anyway, the first thing we established was that lead container is probably made of reused Roman lead coffin panels, but it's of a design that is of 8th to 9th century date. Oh, wow. So it's huh. it's not contemporary with the church it's in. It, it, it It's most likely came from the old Anglo-Saxon church. And a number of these containers have turned up, including a few PAS ones. Um, but, yeah, so that was a really encouraging sign. Mm-hmm. The osteologist looked at the body. It, it is one person. It's not like a jumble of different people with a couple of sheep thrown in, you know, which you worry about with these sort of things. It's one individual, smallish, adult, but young adult, um, probably female. Couldn't say for certain because the bones were in too poor a state, but everything pointed towards female. 17 to 22 years old. 22 at the absolute tops, more like the 18 to 20, had one un- unerupted molar. So all of that looked pretty promising. And, ev- you know, everything pointed in the right direction. The Bishop of Dover, Bishop Rose, came to see us and visited and everything. So lots of interest. Anyway, we, we, we did all that work, packed it all back up. And then sent off. We'd sent off one tooth and one foot bone to Belfast to the Chrono Centre at Queen's University Belfast for the radiocarbon dating. And then I had to wait for probably about six weeks um, for the radiocarbon dates to come through. And it was a worrying time because obviously, if it came back as like twelfth century or something like that, or anything other than seventh century, that's it. It's not Earth. Mm-hmm. And then you you know you've taken your your hometown's parish church that's got its saint and, and established that no it hasn't got its saint so mm. could have gone either way yeah um, and I sat at this desk and the email popped through one day I was on my own in the office and and it said here's your radiocarbon dates so I opened <laughs> it up and my God it's bang on wow mid mid seventh century it's absolutely spot on I mean it's you know, so now some people have said, well, you know, it doesn't prove it's her. Proof, you know, anybody who's done anything in archaeology, 100% proof, when does it ever happen? Um, you, you go on the balance of probability. So, you know, we've got a documentary paper trail from, the, from, the, the, from Anglo-Saxon sources right through the Middle Ages that puts her relics in that church. And then we've got a concealed, you know, concealed in the wall by the altar in an 8th to 9th century lead container, the bones of a young adult, almost certainly female, who died in the mid-7th century. I can't actually think of a more plausible alternative explanation for why that person is there other than that is St. Innsworth. Um and everything we've done since isotopic analysis, um, the Francis Crick Centre has got a DNA sample they're working on, um, and the preliminary results from that suggest female. So, you know, it, it all points in the right direction. The isotope analysis suggests somebody with a high meat diet, okay. which, again, is high status, mm-hmm. exactly what you'd expect. Um, so, 
it, 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 you know, we're pretty sure it's her. Wow. Uh, and so that's the oldest Anglo-Saxon saint who's ever been found, found really. It's the only member of the Kentish Royal Dynasty whose remains we've got. And it's the only, we think, it's the only parish church in England that has the saint it's dedicated to in the church. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And we, we held a big public announcement on 6th of March last year. Martin Bashir came down and interviewed us from the BBC. And it, it went, the story went around the world. It's picked up in New York. It's picked up in Australia, all over the place. And then, so we had a great time. And then about two weeks later, COVID and lockdown and, and everything, you know, everybody forgot about any of that. Um, <laughs> So we're trying to sort of actually wake it all up again as we emerge a year later. Uh, and, and we have, there's a pilgrimage uh, coming in July. Oh, really? Uh, and, and, you know, and we're working to, you know, m you know, make uh, more, more sort of interpretation and display at the church and the museum, which is only two minutes down the road, so that when people come to Folkestone, they can uh, learn more. But there has been a trickle over the years. There's been a trickle of pilgrims, and, and, and she predates the schism between not only the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church, but the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Yeah, true. She's yeah. venerated as a saint by really that entire part of the Christian faith. And there has been, there have been Orthodox pilgrims from russia greece and, and and jerusalem over the years you know on a tour of holy sites in england and they come to folkestone and near the altar well now they can do so in the confidence that it is her wow so it, we, we think that would be you know it's a great thing for folkestone isn't uh, it yeah. that's so rare yeah yeah i know <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, chances. yeah, and, and to be honest, you know, being from Folkestone myself, um, getting that email, opening that email, you know, of all the things I've done in my archaeological career, you know, you have a few moments, don't you, that really stand out. And one of them was opening that email and going, my God, it's her. Wow. It, um, you know, and just, it's actually her, which was a great feeling because I knew that, you know, I was going to be able to go and tell everybody who'd been involved and the church as well, it is her, instead of the alternative of it's not her, you know, very different. It was like a fork in the path, you know, so it, it was great, you know, and I, I think, it, you know, we ha we are looking to do more work about celebrating her and, and, and sort of, and the book, um, you know, we produced this book all about her, which is, you know sort of uh tells you the story of the project really but and, and our discoveries and so on Mapping where can them. people get this book well at the moment i've got about two thousand copies in my office um so we haven't really set up a distribute you can buy it in a church and you can buy it in a museum and they're both closed <laughs> so it's it you know the whole thing has been sort of um it's like we've lost a year of telling this story and disseminating the book and things like that. So hopefully that's all coming back now. So we ha we're just going to have to pretend that 
2020 didn't really exist, you know. <laughs> I and, think a lot of people are doing that. <laughs> just sort of write that off. And we're back where we were a year ago now. We've, you know, the story's out there. We need to do more now to push it out and promote it and talk about it. You know. That's a fascinating story. Yeah. I think, and you know, it's a story in it in itself is a story about the saint, um, but also about you know how you went about um, discovering it and, and you know doing the detective work um, all the way through to finally receiving that email. One of the, one of the things I liked about it um, was that, apart from the lab in Belfast, who did excellent work on the, the radiocarbon. Everybody involved was re- a resident, either born in or resident in East Kent. So, you know, it was people from Christchurch University in Canterbury. It was Canterbury Archaeological Trust. It was, and we had a whole team of local volunteers and we worked with, you know, hand in hand with the church and their congregation and so on. So it, it wasn't a case of some academics from some, you know, other part of the country you know came sort of parachuting in and did this you know it was the locals we got together we raised the money through the lottery we did the project um and and we found the answer you know it was great you know so it was yeah and it just shows you know sometimes that these old stories and myth these legends that you know these are the relics of St Innsworth are true I'm just thinking, um, did you say she's six, she's 600s, isn't she? 600 she's probably stable. born in the 630s and she dies in either the 650s or the early 660s. So that's not long after um, St Augustine, is it, uh, in no. 597? I was going to say, it's her, her grandfather. She's the granddaughter of Ethelbert, King Ethelbert, who, who welcomes Augustine. And she is, as I say, she's the aunt of the two princes killed at Eastry. So, you know, it's... Um, it's amazing. That, Major. You know, it's a really interesting period of Kentish history, actually. You know, if the time team thing goes well, then absolutely, I think, there's a conversation to be had about, do you want to come to Folkestone? Sounds great. <laughs>